You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, let's start off again by talking a little more about that Patreon I mentioned there. Um, as I like to say, my goal for this podcast is to keep it as totally ad-free as possible. But doing this show takes time, and it does take money as well. And time is money, right? A lot of the times, for sure. So in order to remain free of uh, advertisements and things like that, that means I need your support in order to do that. So please consider becoming a patron of our show. If you think this podcast is worth $5 a month to you, then go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up to become a patron. Uh, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And that chat uh, just is so much fun. So come and join us, really. Again, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up and support the, po- the podcast. And remember, it's only $5 a month. And you can cancel it at any time you like. Uh, and if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. That is my uh, music tip jar kind of thing. Because <laughs> I'm a professional musician by trade, those of you who don't know that. Um, <clears throat> that is my mu- my virtual tip jar, so to speak, that a lot of people have developed. Uh, and that's one place you can give that one-time donation. And some people already have. I want to thank every one of the patrons. I want to thank everybody who sent me a donation. And all you guys just for listening as well. Uh, this has been a lot of fun doing this podcast. And I hope to keep it going at least, uh, at least for a little while longer for sure. All right. We do have some emails and some messages to get to this week, so let's get right into it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, our patron Lori brought up during one of those chats, uh, those chats during the live broadcast, she brought up the use of LIDAR on Oak Island and even sent us a LIDAR image of the island, which I posted on the Facebook and Twitter pages for you guys to check out. Well, Lori, you kind of started a whole thing here, so let's talk some LIDAR. <laughs> the first comments come from... Gordon Fader, he is a geologist and also best known as the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. Here is what he said about the LIDAR question. One of the questions, he wrote, quote, one of the question, uh, on the question of LIDAR, it has been done at least twice over the island. It is a spectacular technique, and I interpret this data for a living. The LIDAR from Oak Island shows hundreds of unique and special features, and it appears the show has not taken full advantage of it. A book could be written on what it tells about the island, but it requires field follow-up with an experienced geologist and archaeologist who has worked with this type of data and who knows the regional setting for a full understanding. Gordon, thank you so, so much. Uh, We're going to hear a little bit more from Gordon again later on in the show on a different subject, but here he does answer Lori's question for us, um, the original question about the use of LIDAR. And that answer is yes, LIDAR has indeed been used and has offered some intriguing possibilities. But for whatever reason, here's something else that's going to come up quite a bit. <laughs> the guys either haven't pursued it or, more likely, we just haven't been shown that work on the show. And that's something we may never find out for sure, other than through something like this, through a uh, through an interview with somebody who happens to know about it, right? 
All right. So on the same first, thank you, Gordon. On the same subject, um, another patron of the show, Steve, commented this about the lidar image that Lori sent. He wrote that gouge is definitely interesting. Looks like it runs to and from Fred Nolan's Peninsula. That one straight line that runs off the top of the map but would be underwater is also interesting, though I have to imagine they somehow run utilities to the island could be a cable. Steve, the gouge I'm going to get to in just a second, so 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 hang on to that for the next email. Um, but as far as that other thing you mentioned, for certain that could be utilities running to the mainland. However, assuming we're talking about the same thing here, it wouldn't make too much sense to run those utilities from that point in that direction, since the mainland is practically on the opposite side of the island. If it is utilities, they're essentially running out into the middle of the sea here. But uh, remember, um, Fred Nolan did struggle for years and years with things just like this, with roads and utilities and access, thanks to his uh, ongoing feud with Dan Blankenship. So who knows what he actually did there, right? Who knows what he had to do in order to get those utilities on? Certainly doesn't seem to look very mysterious to me either, for what that's worth. But um, that's pretty cool stuff. Thanks, Steve. And finally, Steve, here comes the answer to your other question. And finally, this is on the subject of LIDAR. We turn to yet another patron. Patrons really keep this show going. I can't tell you how much I love listening to you guys and reading what you have to say and the questions you have and the comments you have. And uh, so here's one patron with a comment and another patron with a question. This is Mark who writes, hey, Dave, LIDAR is basically a fast spinning laser beam that scans the ground as the aircraft moves forward. Think of radar, except with light instead of sound. It typically operates on a couple of different frequencies, following, allowing it to, quote-unquote, see through vegetation and show us what is called bare earth, which is what Lori's picture shows. LIDAR, in which vegetation is not stripped away, is generally called full-feature LIDAR and does not give you the exciting, fuzzy feeling in the nether regions. <laughs> Mark always has a unique way with words. Anyway, he continues, some provinces in Canada, including Nova Scotia, public, uh, publish LIDAR data for free. This is usually fairly low, 5 or 10 meter resolution. In the show, they mention LIDAR occasionally, but hardly ever really show us or explain the technology. For about $100,000, you can get a drone with a decent LIDAR sensor and capture data with a resolution of a couple of centimeters or you can hire a, geoma uh, a geomatics UAV survey company to come and do it for you. I would assume they did just that. If you remember, during the crackpot session with the GIS lady, she used LIDAR data to pick out boulders and fantasize them into exotic shapes exposing the treasure location. She would have needed access to data with a resolution higher than five meters, I would think. Uh, in another episode, Laird offered to scan the stone road with a drone. Not sure if it was LIDAR or photogrammetry he was talking about. Mark, I can't say words like that. Anyway, not sure if you remember, Dave, but in your interview with Gordon Fader, here you go, Steve, he mentioned LIDAR as well and explained that gash northeast of the swamp that is so clearly visible on the picture Lori shared. I think it had something to do with Fred Nolan heavy-handedly dragging boulders around. Cheers, Mark. Uh, great, great stuff, Mark, as always. Uh, that is my recollection of what Gordon said as well about the that trench-looking feature you see there. I could be wrong on the specifics. Um, I'm not sure if what you said there is exactly what he talked about. I thought it was digging over there that he was looking at. I don't know. Um, but, I, uh, it, you know, I don't recall that. But now that you mention it, um, I, I, 
I at least recall this, right? That uh, when Gordon was talking about that feature, in my mind, I just kind of mentally crossed it off the list, if you know what I mean. Okay, let's go to an email now from Andrew, who says, very quickly, am I mistaken or didn't episode one end with camera en- with a camera entering a void in a borehole? Episode two doesn't pick up there or even mention it. Andrew, um, that's not how I remember it. My recollection is the camera went down, they had a good look around, and then after that they put down a sonar scanner. And then later we got to see the results of that scanner, or at least a very small glimpse of those results, during the war room meeting, which kind of ended the whole two-hour premiere. Is it strange that they didn't go back to this episode in, uh, go back to this little idea in episode two? Of course it is. I mean, why not stick a camera and sonar down every single hole thereafter, right? Well, the thing is, do we really think they didn't do that or at least that they didn't think about it and discuss it? No, I'm pretty sure they did. But again, as I mentioned before about something else, for some reason it doesn't end up on the show. And I always tell you guys, you can always assume that that what that means by not seeing it is that nothing came out of it. The editors do not like to show failures. And there are failures all the darn time on Oak Island. There have been for two and a half centuries. Thanks, Andrew. If I'm wrong about my recollection of how that episode ended, guys, please let me know. But I'm pretty sure I'm not. Okay. Let's go now to a listener named Gloria who says, Hi, Dave. It does not matter to me if you wing the podcast. They all sound good to me. Well, thank you. Now, on to episode two of Oak Island season 10. I suppose the producers felt it was better TV for the guys to go to England, but they did not do any actual research on their own. They were tourists. Gretchen and that archive dude could just as easily reported their finds by video conference. While some Templars really did live at one time in the Royston area, the connection to Oak Island by the three cave images shown seems like a stretch to me. I applaud their going after primary evidence in the archives. We just need to be careful about the interpretation and leaping to conclusions. I will continue to follow the Oak Island project to the bitter or sweet end. However, to me, a lot of the TV show seems like so much padding, hype, or fluff. I guess it has to be that way to garner more money or more ad dollars. It is what it's it is what it is meant to be entertainment. I do not mean in any way to denigrate the brothers. I believe they honestly want to find the truth to the mystery. I am mostly happy to be along for the ride. Take care, God bless Gloria. Thank you, Gloria. Yeah, the guys were indeed tourists upon that trip, no doubt about it. Um, they're also not professional researchers, so I'm not sure you really want them being the researchers, but uh, just as they were, you know, this is all the same as they were last year in Portugal, right? But I still feel like I really enjoy it when they do these scenes. If for no other reason, I get to decide, you know, at least to some degree, right, for myself about what I'm seeing here, because I get to see more of what they're theorizing about rather than just some still photos and then the opinions of a theorist slash believer. Plus, it's the History Channel here, right? And I love history, which is why I'm so drawn to Oak Island, because it is such a great launching point to uh, so many different historical journeys. I'm also happy to be along for the ride on trips like this, along with you and everybody else who listens and comments. I mean, that's what makes it so much fun here. Great stuff, Gloria. Keep those emails coming, okay? All right. We're going to finish up here with a lengthy but a very interesting email from Maura, who writes, and I hope I'm saying your name right. Dave, as always, I really enjoy the podcast. I agree with all the fans that I'd rather just listen to you than watch the show anymore. Can't give up on the mystery. 
I live in Indianapolis where last spring they actually did a musical called Oak Island, A New Musical. We had tickets, but our performance got canceled anyway. It was basically about how the real treasure is the common love of mystery. Sometimes I think that everyone is slowly leading to the same conclusion. So I wanted to write you about one of your listeners' letter last week where he talked about how much of the online information sources are just copy and pasting each other. I am a genealogist. When doing genealogy research, we actually have a standardized process for proving relationships. It involves going from data and information and works through the evidence into proof. To get from evidence to proof, you absolutely have to have more than one source, and they have to be independent. It also helps if the sources are primary, meaning people giving information that they are specifically present for. Sounds simple, but think of this situation. Aunt Betty dies of natural causes in a hospital. Her body is sent to the funeral home. Cousin Bobby goes to the funeral home and is interviewed by the funeral director. In that conversation, the funeral director helps to fill out the biographical information on the death certificate with Cousin Bobby. Today, this section will usually have a line for an informant to be identified, but in the past, it was often unrecorded. Bobby and the funeral director also write an obituary, and the funeral director sends it to the paper. Bobby arranges with the funeral director for a religious service at their church. Fast forward 30 years, you're doing research about where Aunt Betty was born. First, you look at the death certificate in a state database. It says Toledo, Ohio. Evidence? So great. Then you go to an online newspaper database and find her obituary. It also says she was born in Toledo, Ohio. The obituary says that her funeral was held at a local church. You call the church for their records. They tell you they show she was born in Toledo, Ohio. On the surface, it looks like you have three independent sources providing enough evidence to evolve to proof of Aunt Betty's birthplace. However, all three sources are really just what Cousin Bobby told the funeral director. They aren't independent in any way. But if you didn't take the time to think about how these records are created, you would over-rely on them. All they really prove is that Cousin Bobby believed his mother was born in Toledo. Hopefully you can find other sources with independent respondents to answer your question. This is the same thing with Oak Island stuff. I think that's what your letter writer was describing. Enthusiasts are finding proof where only evidence and information exists. I truly hope we find out something exciting at the end. Even if the musical people had it right, it would be nice to know what the hell happened on that island. One last note, Aunt Betty was really from Lambertville, Michigan. It's a Toledo suburb, but just across the state lines. That means you'd be looking for additional information about her in the wrong place. Aunt Betty always told people Toledo because it was it was what ha- it was what had common meaning to people. I mean, who knows where Lambertville, Michigan is? One guy thinks he's right, misunderstands something because he didn't understand or care about the details. And then later, other people don't understand some records, and Aunt Betty is very difficult to research and discover the truth about. Not only were the sources really the same, but Cousin Bobby was also a secondary source, meaning he was giving information about something he did not have firsthand knowledge of. Just your genealogy reference for the day? Please keep up with the podcast and the music. Have a wonderful holiday. Thanks, Maura. Um, Maura... It seems just about every other week or so, I end up saying this, and I'm going to say it again here. I absolutely love the listeners of this podcast. More of my goodness. What a great email, and what a great way to explain for all of us the trappings involved with any kind of research, historical research. 
the letter, or I think it was actually the article that you're referring to, uh, was talking about the Royston Cave, which we see plenty of on last week's episode, and how the idea that the cave is Templar in origin really might not be anything more than rumor or even a local legend. But as these kind of legends get repeated over and over, the same source material gets regurgitated as new information, the line between the truth and fiction really begins to blur. There are so many examples of this on Oak Island's short history. The idea that the original discoverers of the money pit came to the island because they saw strange lights or that the island was completely uninhabited when they did come and discover the money pit. And I can go on and on and on. These things have been repeated so often in reports and the sourcing of the information is never supplied to the reader or the viewer. So it's easy for a modern researcher to look at all this stuff and say, hey, look, I have three different places that said the island was uninhabited or that the boys came over there because there were lights or that there were boys at all, right? <laughs> but they really don't have three separate sources. They have three places, three different things repeating the same rumor, and then that's how it turns into fact. It's about cutting just below the surface a little bit sometimes, which can I think would be easier with Oak Island than even with the genealogy that you're mentioning here, Maura. For instance... I get a lot of flack for saying that I don't believe in the Xena Halpern map, and I think it's most likely a fake. Now, I don't believe, and I say this, I always bear repeating this, I don't believe Xena fabricated it or anything like that. I don't believe she was perpetrating a fraud. I believe she was essentially duped by it as well. Remember before when I said I would mention Gordon Fader again? This past week, this is what Gordon said to me about Xena's map. He said, quote, The Z map is fake. It cannot be old, as the shape of the island on the map is almost the same as it is today. However, sea level was much lower back in the time, one meter for every 300 years. And Oak Island was not even an island five to 600 years ago. This has been proven by sea level and paleo-geomorphology <laughs> assessments. That's all it takes, right? He's got a scientific source that says this is incorrect, and then we could scratch this off the, off the list, right? The list of evidence. And that's what we need to do with evidence on Oak Island. But sometimes it's hard to do that because you do have to take that step to find a geologist, show them this thing and say, what do you think? But most people who write about this kind of stuff don't do that. So now we have Xena, we have the show, we have other people who believe in a map that is clearly not from the 12th or 13th century. Now, until we can get some serious proof, you know, of what Royston Cave actually is, which historians have been trying to do for decades, until then, I'm not sure we can consider it evidence of anything dealing with Oak Island. Again, just look a little further into the info and decide, is this really an accurate source, right? What is Gretchen's information? Where is she getting it from? Where is the idea come from? that this cave is a Templar initiation thing or whatever she called it, right? Um, you got to find out what her source is because there doesn't seem to be a lot of really good corroborating evidence that that's what this is. Anyway, Mora, fantastic email. I absolutely love the way you put that for us. Really is great to hear from you. Keep that stuff coming. That's all the emails for this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com.
And it is time to discuss Season 10, Episode 3 of The Curse of Oak Island called Bubbling Over. Now, before we get started, I uh, had to contain my excitement uh, throughout the earlier portion of the show, throughout the, uh, the, the listener question portion of the show, because if, Laurie, if you're listening, LiDAR. <laughs> right? LiDAR. Uh, we're getting LiDAR. We're getting fresh LiDAR. We talk, spent all this time talking about whether or not they've done it well. They have, as we know, uh, but now they are doing it again and bringing in an entirely different group. Um, coming in, Keith Hollander and Robert Seddon, I think was their name, of Phoenix Aerial Productions are doing a full LiDAR scan. Uh, we see a quick scene in there where Jack Begley takes them out to where they're going to launch their drone and do their scan. For some reason, we don't see any follow-up on that. I'm not really sure why. It doesn't take that long to do LiDAR scans, but uh, they're going to make it seem like it takes a week or so. But anyway, after all of that talk in the email section about LiDAR, here we go. We're going to get LiDAR. We're going to get LiDAR galore. And those of you who have been, uh, who have some background in this information, we have a few people who seem to have that, um, you know, take a look at this. Send us in what you know and what you see out of these LiDAR scans, because you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a quick shot, and you're going to have to pause it, and you're going to have to come out with some things, because all we're going to hear about are anomalies and things we want to look at and that kind of stuff. We're not going to hear about the things that might be interesting, but certainly not um, treasure-related, right? So keep an eye out, guys. Keep a weather eye out, as they like to say. All right. There's only a couple places really to talk about, the Lot 7 and 8 area and the Money Pit area. So we're going to start with Lot 7 and 8. And we see here, uh, the first mention of this is a gemologist, Peter Schneilar, I think was his name. If I have that correct, he's a gemologist. Um, he's here to follow up on this little pin, this jewelry piece that they found last week that uh, Gary uncovered over on Lot 7. Now, this is the same place where they found this Garnet gemstone back in uh, 2017. And there's an interesting little thing from the narrator here that made me chuckle. He says that of the Garnet gemstone, some believe it may be connected to the sacred treasures of the Knights Templar, which made me immediately say, who thinks that and why? What are we talking about? There was a vague connection to Freemasons, um, modern Freemasons, I'm not sure how we extrapolate that down to a connection to the sacred treasure of the Knights Templar, but be that as it may, we'll give uh, the writers their due there and let them discuss it in any way they seem to want to discuss it. That's, again, not really sure what all that meant. But anyway, um, the material, uh, we get a good look at this material and what it's made of, and it is glass uh, made along with a ferrous material, so some sort of iron or brass or something along like along those lines. Um it seems to be a jewelry pin, a piece of what I would call maybe costume jewelry uh, from the 1700s. Um, doesn't seem particularly valuable from the way they're describing it. They're trying to describe it as interesting and fascinating and connecting to whatever they want to connect it to. But it really isn't if you start reading between the lines of what they're saying here. Um, you know, it seems I think at one point the gemologist Peters even says that it was fairly a common type of pin, I think is actually the words he used, a common type of pin for the 1700s. So again, I think they called it a cloak pin. Um, 
what I can say is from this point forward, I think we're probably not going to hear much more about this, <laughs> this said pin. So I'm not really all that uh, going to spend all that much time on it. Later on in the show, we get down to lot eight, which is just right next door. And um, Gary and Jack are metal detecting again, and they pull out a couple of thin pieces of copper. Um, they start, there's a, there's some sort of substance in it um, that they, Jack says, oh, maybe it's parchment. There's no reason to believe it's parchment, unfortunately. Uh, certainly we don't have any proof of that and we don't see any parchment. Um, I'll tell you what it looked like to me. It looked like the stem of an old copper smoking pipe um, or maybe more than one, you know, um, and obviously damaged in, uh, in some way, shape or form and corroded quite a bit as well. Uh, anyway, they move on quickly from those. We don't get any any sort of... Uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Any sort of follow up on any of that. Uh, and Claude over on the Patreon during the discussion, he said, did the settlers on the island not have wives, daughters or anyone who might wear jewelry? Uh, yes, they do. And we find a lot of that stuff here. I'm sure we just don't ever get to see it. The interesting little thing about this is the next thing they find, they pull out another curved piece of iron, um, which Gary thinks is a piece of a bell. He calls it bell metal. Again, we don't have a follow-up on this, not yet, uh, so we don't know if it actually is bell metal. But the interesting thing that Steve point out, points out on the Patreon is he writes, quote, did he just bag it and drop the bag back into the hole? Wonder if they have to do that for Laird. <laughs> so... Um, Steve, what I did was I then, during the show itself, reached out to Laird, knowing full well that Laird does not actually watch the show, so I, I don't think he has a real good idea of what it was. Um, he, he, what he said was he's not really sure why he would do that. Uh, he certainly, so therefore, it doesn't do it because of Laird. No, no reasons for that in particular. Um, he says that it was not discarded. The mail, the the piece itself was not discarded, so he definitely kept it. Why he put it there, we have no idea, um, and Laird doesn't know either. So <laughs> there you go, interesting kind of little thing. Uh, what surprised me about it, Stephen, I think what surprised you about it is the way in which they took pains to show that they showed him actually putting the piece back in the hole. I guess just to remember where it came from or to log it in some kind. Anyway, it's a mystery. And certainly not one, I think, of much importance. Okay, so anyway, we're still discussing this Lot 7 and 8 area, or at least things related to it. We see the return of a numismatist who is uh, like a jewelry expert. His name is Sandy Campbell. And he comes in to the Interpretive Center to look at this possible coin that was found back in Episode 1. You remember the sort of square metal piece that Gary got all excited about, thinking it might be a coin? Um he says it's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's not a coin. He doesn't seem to really know what it is. Um, he thinks it's. He thinks it could be uh, like a trading piece, something you would use to sort of barter with, uh, which essentially is a coin. It's just not a coin that's uh, in in the sort of minted sense, right? Uh, it could also be used as a weight for weighing different trading values because he says it's exactly four grams. I mean, it's kind of corroded, so I'm not sure if that means it was always exactly four grams, but who knows? Um, he kind of throws out this idea that it's 500 years old. Um, I'm not really sure why he thinks that other than just the way he's looking at it. He had, doesn't there, there doesn't seem to be any chemical analysis to say anything like that. 
Uh, so I'm not really sure if anything that he's saying here. First of all, I'm not really sure if anything he's saying here is exactly what he meant to say, because uh, that happens quite a bit on Oak Island. But I don't think any of it has been verified or proven. So jumping to the conclusion that there's a 500-year-old piece of iron there seems a little hopeful. Let me put it that way. Uh, anyway. The thing I wanted to point out, that's the end of that conversation. The thing I wanted to point out before I sort of wrap up this lot seven and eight discussion is the disappointing nature of both of these finds and the way they were handled on the show. I think one of the things we talked about when we started this season and one of the things we were talking about at the end of last season that we really wish they would stop doing, wish the show and the producers and the editors would stop doing, is stop trying to force us to believe that every episode, something of value, some clue is found. This is sort of a relatively new thing. This is something that's happened, if I'm not mistaken, since the pandemic era. Um, before that, the first few seasons, this certainly was not the case. We would just see a lot of theorists, a lot of looking around, some pretty cool history. Now we have to seem to have to have Gary Drayton especially find something of value in just about every episode. And here we have two things that are handled both in sort of the same way. An expert coming in, an expert saying that not, that the artifact is not really of any value, certainly not a treasure, certainly not of any um, historical significance, but it's couched to us, it's broadcasted to us as if this really was something of great value and interest. And I'm kind of disappointed. I was hoping that we would get past this idea and focus a little more on the real hard work and the history and those things. Uh, I think they've done a good job so far in the first two episodes of doing that, but this episode really kind of brought back sort of last year's feel. Uh, again, this is just me showing up, throwing out my opinion. If you disagree, I certainly apologize, but uh, I don't, you know, this is what I think is the one of the biggest arguments, one of the biggest complaints from viewers of the recent seasons of The Curse of Oak Island is this desire to create some sort of find every single episode, even when all you have to do is sort of listen a little closer and knock out all the narration and you realize... They're really not finding anything that isn't doesn't seem very common. Something they wouldn't you wouldn't find looking basically anywhere along the east coast of North America, where Europeans have been here for hundreds of years. Right? They're still kind of harping on this stuff, and uh, I guess that's a little disappointing. Anyway, in the next scene that we see, we have this sort of um, discussion, this meeting in the interpretive center, uh, where Gary again kind of promotes this idea that this artifact is way, way bigger than it actually is. And I just don't think it is. And hopefully this is um, a trend that is going away and we don't see this much, much more. But uh, this was kind of disappointing to me. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about the money pit. All right, now some great stuff over at the Money Pit. Uh, the show actually starts with guys over at the Money Pit area drilling hole. Now these are getting good. A point five N dash thirteen point five. This is another borehole, which in the graphic that we see here, 
looks like it's further away from the garden shaft than it actually is. But when we see them drilling it, it looks like it's almost right on top of the garden shaft. Not sure what the uh, difference is in those, in that graphic, but be that as it may, um, we just sort of see them start this. They're looking down again along this new tunnel feature to try to figure out you know, where it goes and how far it goes and what direction, all that kind of stuff. Rick and Marty and Craig arrive uh, as the hole is down at about 50 feet and they hit a void there. At 55 feet, that seems to be about a 10-foot drop. Um, and we hearken back to a hole last year, which I think was called AB13, uh, that had an air pocket at 60 feet. You remember that? Remember the water comes spewing out of the uh, of the air pocket? What could that be and all that kind of stuff? You remember that, the drill there? Anyway, they showed it to you uh, if you don't, if you didn't see the show because some people apparently don't watch the show, just listen to the podcast. So they're kind of trying to make a connection there between the two. Jeff on the Patreon, as we're getting right to the start of this, writes this, and I think this is a good question to ask. My question about this new tunnel discovered heading towards the garden shaft approximately 100 feet down, could this be the same tunnel they found two seasons ago running along northwest of where they thought the money pit was? It was approximately 90 feet down. I remember questioning at the time if it might have a correlation with the 90-foot stone. And there was speculation why would there be a tunnel up in this area? Was it heading to the swamp or to the stone road? And then they just stopped pursuing it all of a sudden, and it was forgotten and never mentioned again. Jeff, that's the great question. There's no way to know if they're connected at this point because, you, as you're saying, the two shafts that they're digging are not right next to each other. Um could they be connected? Well, it doesn't appear that way, but I'm starting to question the graphics we're seeing, right? So I'm not really sure. It doesn't appear that way because they're saying this tunnel runs from the south, almost to the, from the southeast, heading north towards the garden shaft when the shaft you're talking about is northwest, right? So I, I don't think they're connected. I hope I'm answering your question. Uh, I don't think they're connected. The thing you have to understand is there are tunnels and shafts everywhere. We think we know of most of them. We think we know of all of them. Some people think they know of all of them, but they really don't. There are lots of things that people don't know down there. So it's, you know, where we're going with this may answer some of these questions, but I'm just not sure those two things are connected. Anyway, as they get down towards 100 feet or so, I think, just past 100 feet, um, the guys doing the drilling, who are, again, right on top of the garden shaft, notice that there are little bubbles coming up from the garden shaft, and that gets everybody excited. Um, now, my first reaction to this was not one of a whole lot of excitement, so I decided to ask a geologist and a treasure skeptic who we've mentioned many times already on the show, friend of the show, Gordon Fader. He is co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. Those of you who want to find a book about something other than treasure on Oak Island, something of a historic treasure, this is the book you need to read. I asked him, I said to him, I'm not surprised by these bubbling. And I asked, you know, is there any reason to be surprised by it? And he said, "Not. it's not surprising at all. That uh, as a geologist, he can explain all of these findings with cavities, shafts, sinkholes. Um, there should not be any cavities in there unless an old shaft of a of nat you know could be some sort of natural substance feature. Um, when they say they hit a cavity at shallow depth, which is what they did earlier, right at the fifty feet, 
It means there is a sinkhole forming at depth. This is what Gordon says. And in time, it will hit the surface. The seismic data they show confirms this to a T. And he also adds this about the garden shaft. By the way, the garden shaft is just an old searcher shaft, likely shaft 5B or 12. It's no big deal. And that was dug to 123 feet and then abandoned, which is exactly what we go, what we learn if we go back and watch the original garden shaft stuff. And actually, I think Marty came to, uh, during a Matty Blake show, Marty came on the air and actually said that that shaft, which we looked at with the ladder sticking out, uh, is just an old searcher shaft and that they do know that. So anyway, I guess the believers would like to say the garden shaft um, you know, is the, that whoever was digging in the garden shaft may actually have been as close to the money pit as possible, right? That's the idea we're going by here. Anyway, later at that same meeting I mentioned in the Interpretive Center where Gary is going on about how wonderful this invaluable uh, or hardly valuable artifact was, um, we have another discussion. And in this discussion, Doug says the thing I think a lot of us have been waiting for. He says that they have found a Canadian mining company who might be able to come in and open up and repair the garden shaft. So the next scene we see about this is in the war room, and it's a meeting where the guys are actually speaking with representatives from a company called Dumas Contracting. These are guys who are experts. They're contractors who actually build mine shafts. It's incredible stuff. I can't believe this is uh, this is what we're going to do here. And they spend their time explaining what they're going to do, right? So they start talking. It's very technical. Um, certainly, I don't understand how any of this stuff works, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. Uh, but they're you know they're talking about their plans and how they're going to be able to reopen and repair this garden shaft. Now, as this occurs, Ginger on the um, Patreon says, as engineers, they can't access the tunnels by themselves. I'm baffled by the situation of the garden shaft. I always assumed they had researched the area completely before they moved all the rocks and plants into it. It even had a wooden ladder in it. Wouldn't that tell you something is down there? Ginger, yes. Uh, No, hold on. (laughs) Let me go back. It doesn't tell them something is down there. It tells them that a searcher shaft was there, and they did do that. They did come to that conclusion, as I just said a second ago. Um, The problem is, for some reason or another, whether it be testing or this tunnel, they're now drawn back into it. Some people think that they actually have information that they're not showing us. The reason why they're drawn back to the garden shaft, because there are a lot of people who mention this stuff, you know, and just wonder where this is coming from. I mean, you know, people say this to me all the time. Where did this come from? Where did this happen that they just all of a sudden came onto the garden shaft? They don't really explain that. And a lot of people mention that to me. Jeff on the Patreon actually said, it seems really strange how this whole garden shaft fascination has seemingly come out of nowhere. Uh, And then he writes what's going on with the stone road. Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, the stone road has been stopped by the government work, of course, that we heard because there's possible connection to um, to indigenous peoples there. And I guess what we're doing is we're turning to the garden shaft instead. But is there a better reason besides what they've shown? It's hard to say. Anyway, um, if all goes well and the Dumas guys do what they want to do, then we can actually get a cameraman <laughs> to follow these guys down into the shaft in the money pit. 
How fascinating. I can't wait for that. I mean, that just seems like a really cool thing. Of course, Claude on the Patreon in his very uh, <laughs> Claude way says, just imagine if we find a large stash of garnet brooches, lead crosses, and glass jewelry at the center of the garden shaft. Well, you know, maybe that's what that ladder was for, to get down to that, uh, that cachet of, of uh, really not very valuable treasure. Anyway, it's going to take 50 days of work. Uh, so I guess this means we're not going to be getting this until towards the end of this season. So even though we're hearing about it now, I think that the point they make by telling us that 50 days is to sort of let us know that this is going to take some time and we're not going to see it right away. So buckle up, guys. We're going to pull out this garden shaft and we're going to start working on it. It's amazing. And the amazing part is the work has already been done, right? So, you know, the guys already know what's what's down there and all that kind of stuff. All right. Let me just leave you with this as we finish up here. This is exciting. And these guys have incredible plans. They seem to have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. But let me just send out this little warning. Every single mining expert, and there have been many, who have been on this island for 200 years, talked just like these guys. We can do it. We can open it up. We can stop the water. We can get down there. All of them felt that. All of them felt that almost fully. Had no problem. We had the technology that nobody had before. And just remember, none of them, none of them ever actually did. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Uh, you know, some great stuff, guys. Thank you, everybody, for coming on to the uh, Patreon and discussing all this stuff with us last night. It's always so much fun to hear from you guys. If you want to become a patron, you think this show's worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Again, it's $5 a month. You can cancel any time. Thank you to everybody who uh, who has done that already. And if you'd like to help out the podcast in another way, uh, you want to make a donation, a one-time donation, the only way I can do that is via Venmo at Dave McBride Music because I'm a musician. That's sort of my virtual tip jar there. Uh, you can certainly do it that way if you don't want to be you know, into one of these $5 a month things. And also, if you want to help out the podcast in another way, then just leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that. I love reading them, uh, but we do need some more. So if you haven't left a, a rating on any of your podcasting platforms, get them up there. We need some new ones. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to at Diggin Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, Island at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message on social media, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read, please make a note of that for me. And I got another question for you. For those of you who uh, who like to uh, comment and and question, would you like me to discuss one of the things I've done throughout the entirety of this podcast? Is I have not discussed the coming soon. Should we in this little last section here uh, mention the you know the the preview for the next episode at least to kind of talk about it even just for a few sentences? Anyway, I haven't done that so far. Um, I don't know why. I guess because I don't look much into them, but we certainly can do it. People have mentioned them to me recently. So if you're interested, I certainly can add that to the show. But you got to tell me that's what you want. Anyway, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it is crown time. 
I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oakland.